Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture for this morning is found in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. That's on page. 941 of the Blue Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The words of our Lord. Let us pray. Lord, bless us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, opening up your word, that we might understand all the more what it means to be just before you, what it means to be counted righteous in Christ Jesus. To the end, Lord, that we might glory in the riches of the gospel. We might glory in your committed favor and goodness to us. Bless us, Lord, that we will manifest the fruits of your love in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because I give them as illustrations, a lot of times you probably think I read every comic on the comic page, but... There are special ones. Lockhorns is one that uh, I read sometimes. And, you know, it's, uh, there are two eating ones that come to mind where he says uh, to Loretta, uh, I eat sensibly. It makes sense to me, you know. <laughs> or the one I like when she's serving him a meal, he says, unfortunately, he's talking to a friend as she brings the food out. They're having a guest over. He says, unfortunately, what happens in the kitchen doesn't stay in the kitchen. But the one that uh, I want to mention that has uh, some application to where we're going to go this morning is uh, his statement that Loretta 
uh, doesn't mind showing me public, uh, doesn't mind uh, demonstrating public shows of correction <laughs> as opposed to PDAs, you know, affection. And I thought about that, uh, you know, there's a slight application to us to ask, I wonder how many times uh, there are public shows of correction to, to husbands and wives rather than affection. You know, if your wife added them up in a week, you know, he hadn't really shown me much affection in front of anybody. He's never honored me in front of anybody or com- uh, complimented me, but he said some other things to me in front of other people. But it raises this issue with the average Christian. I have an illustration I use in teaching where I draw a kind of canopy over a person and the cross underneath that canopy. And I draw an arrow that uh, moves into the canopy. And around the canopy, I draw the goodness of God. And the point being that when you believe in Christ, you're to believe into and be convinced of God's permanent goodness towards you. The sister prayed, goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. That is a necessary, I say necessary result of believing, truly believing in the cross of Jesus Christ. But for many of us, there's a disconnect. Uh, That's one of the reasons uh, the sonship class is so helpful to us because it connects the dots. Because we can talk about believing in Christ, believing that He's forgiven me of my sins, but every day we're not really basking in God's show of affection. We just seem to always be under the stern eye of a corrector. That's all we really feel from God. We don't exil- we're not exhilarated and convinced of the fact he is entirely, completely committed to my good all the day long. And for that to thrill us, really thrill us, really motivate us, energize us, change the way we treat one another because we're so buoyed up by being convinced of his goodness. Why? Because we believe in the cross. Because we believe... Fundamentally, he's justified me. He's declared me righteous in his presence, accepted in his presence. That's why Luther calls this section the centerpiece of Romans, and not in those exact words, but the centerpiece of Romans and the centerpiece of the Bible. That's his view of this section. It's dense. Uh, It's like uh, going... In, in the trees and here, they're just everywhere. It, it's, it's like having, uh, you, you come upon a, you're, you're going through the botanical gardens and you see flowers here, flowers there, and then you come around a corner and there are hundreds of different species of flowers everywhere and you just feel like, i got to stop here and just see what all's there. And for guys, your illustration is a buffet. You know, <laughs> So you stop and you just look at that buffet on the cruise ship and you just first can't take it all in. You know, you know you're not going to be. Well, that's kind of how this passage is. It's packed with so many things. Our time is limited here uh, this morning. So we're not going to, you could spend weeks on this one passage for that reason, this centerpiece of Romans and perhaps in many ways of the scriptures themselves. But I want to talk about, uh, because it's so prominent, the word righteousness. And at first, it's not, in the English, it's not so apparent that in, in the original language, the word righteousness, justified, justifier, just, all of those are in the same root in the original. 
And in the English, we just we have to use righteousness or just or justifier because we don't we can't use the same word in, in as adverb and adjective and verb and that kind of thing. We 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 can say for the sake of likeness when he says in verse twenty four they're justified. We could say they're declared righteous. You know, for instance, that kind of thing. But just to see that that permeates this whole section of scripture. So I'm going to divide it in just questions, okay? Uh, questions, simple questions like what, where, who, how, and why, okay? First, what is this righteousness of God? Well, in the first few verses, the righteousness of God, I would propose to you is basically this, the justifying action of God, the justifying action of God. Notice it's manifested now. Through Jesus Christ, there is an unveiling of this justifying action of God that had not not been known uh, before, that has the idea of now manifested. And if you use that as a substitute for the phrase, go to verse 22 and notice the justifying action of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Then treat the next phrase uh, through verse 23 as a parenthesis and then read verse 24. So I'm going to skip from 22 at the end of believe to verse 24. If you don't have your Bibles out, good time to get them out because uh, we're going to be looking at this passage pretty closely. So notice how this reads. The justifying action of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe and are justified by His grace. Or verse 24, really, it's a the more accurate translation, being justified. So the righteousness of God has to do with our being declared justified, declaring us righteous by His grace as a gift. Then we'll see that God's righteousness mentioned later in the passage has to do with His justice or His uh, his action against sin. But just touching on this meaning of being declared righteous or justified, it not only means that we're acquitted of sin, which it does, and you can see in chapter 4, uh, verse 6, the one whom God counts righteous, verse 6, there's the same idea, considered righteous, and he quotes then from the Old Testament, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Or we saw last week from 2 Corinthians, not counting their sins against them. So that's a vital aspect when he declares us righteous, when he uh, has this justifying action, he, he does no longer counts our sin against us. We're acquitted of that sin. That means we're forgiven, of course. But it's very positive, as we saw last week. It means now we're in relationship to this God. We are fully and completely accepted by this God. The smile of His favor is on us. As He says later in chapter 8, verse 31, God is for us. That's the essence of the result of being justified. As He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Now that we're justified, we have peace with God. Wholeness with God. 
There's nothing between us and God. It's intensely personal. It's delightful. It's a thing to be rejoiced in. It's connected to the idea of adoption, which is in Scripture. We're declared His and in the same action He makes us His children. So it's very personal. It's intimate in its final result for us. So every day, because I've been declared righteous, I can say, I have only God's favor today. I have God's favor always. I have God's favor forever. That's what it means. This great justifying action of God through Christ. But then the question comes up, where do you find it? Where do you find it? Well, it's kind of interesting if you're looking for the keys and somebody says, well, they're not in my pocket and they're not in the drawer and they're not in the house and they're not in the car. Where are the keys? You know, that kind of idea of where they're not. And that's basically what Paul begins here by saying, uh, the righteousness of God is manifested and you won't find it in the law. It's apart from the law. And the context in verse 20 is the works of the law. Seeking to do the law as a means of uh, gaining God's favor. And he says nobody through using or misusing the law in that way will be justified in his sight. Because the law only teaches you how much you have sinned in, it, in the end. And so it certainly will not, cannot be perverted to be used at, by obeying it that it will gain you favor with God. So he says here, it is apart from the law. You have that same phrase down in verse 28. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or as he says uh, later in uh, chapter 4, verse 6, the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Apart from works. Apart from the works of the law. And here, just the whole thing, apart from the law. So there is no connection with the law, but the law will tell you where it is. You won't find it in the law, but the law will tell you about it or tell you where it is. Like the movie National Treasure, where they're looking for the next clue, and they don't know that maybe the next place is where the treasure is, or the Da Vinci Code had the same idea. You follow a clue, and maybe this is where the prize is. No, it's telling you it's somewhere else. And that's a sense what the uh, the law and the as he says, the law and the prophets, that's the first five books and everything else in the Old Testament is a shorthand of saying that, uh, that they bear witness to this righteousness of God. They point you, they announce to you that there is this righteousness uh, to be had, this justifi- justifying action of God. And there may be some reference here to uh, Isaiah where... Uh, Several times God speaks of his righteousness and salvation that is coming on the scene in the future to rescue his people. So in this place then, in terms of where, he says, not the law. And the reason is that the law condemns us. Notice back in uh, verse 9 of this chapter, he says, All, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin because of the law. In our very passage, it says the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And I'd like to liken the law to a tar baby sinking in quicksand. 
a tar baby sinking in quicksand. And our effort to isolate the law from the mercy of God, to isolate the law from forgiveness, and to just treat the law as a code, we're going to do the right things in order to win God's favor. It's like fighting a tar baby and getting stuck further and further on the tar baby, you know, Br'er Rabbit, but also you're in quicksand just going down. That's what it's like to try to earn God's favor through the law through obedience, through, through trying to do enough good. But though we all say, yeah, I know, we trust in Jesus, many days for us are lived that way. You sin grievously, you make some mistake, you do something you hadn't done in months or years, and you just think, how can I be a believer? I know God hates me. How will I work back into his favor? You're trying to use the law to get back to God. The law never got you to God in the first place in that using it that way. In fact, look what Paul says in chapter 7 of this uh, book, verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So... There's that idea of the tar baby sinking into quicksand. The law held us captive and it was bearing fruit for death. We were dying under the effort to try to get to God through just obedience, trying to earn his favor. And so Paul says here, this justifying action, this being declared by God righteous has nothing to do with your obedience. It has nothing to do with something that you earn before God, trying to use His law in that way. You will not find it in the law. You will find it not there, but you look to the person. Don't look to the law. Look to the person of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so he says, the righteousness of God, in verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's where it is. Totally separate from law, has nothing to do with law, though the law proclaimed that it would be had in him. The law proclaimed him. It pointed a way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the, the, uh, this takes us then to who. So we've got the where. It's not in the law. It's in the person of Christ. There's no release apart from Christ from the law. We have to be released from the law's captivity, the law's condemnation. We have to be set free from that through Jesus Christ. And notice it's for whom. In verse 22, he says, There is no distinction. Later in chapter 10, verse 12, he uses this phrase, and then he adds between Jew and Greek. So that's probably what he means, including all of humanity. But this is so good and so interesting He's already emphasized the fact that it's for all. Because he says in verse 22, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And then it almost seems redundant because he adds, for all who believe. But several commentators point out that, that he's trying to emphasize it's by faith. And listen, anyone can have it. It's for anyone who believes. For all who believe. No matter your condition, no matter your sinfulness, this status of being righteous before God, this action of His declaring that you're His forever, it's just for those who helplessly trust in Him. Anybody. It's for anybody who will helplessly trust in Him. 
There's no distinction. There's no level. No, it's, it's open for anybody. But here's the interesting thing. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. God's righteousness is for all because all need it. The point is, all need it, therefore all can have it if they will but trust in Him. So it's, it's stressing the availability of this righteousness. It's available to all because all need it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all, of course, is, is we've just talked about that every mouth is stopped in verse 19. Uh, verse 9, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. And you're familiar with verses 10 and following. None is righteousness, righteous. Verse 12, all have turned aside. And the way we began our very worship was Romans eleven thirty two, 32, uh, where he says he's consigned all to disobedience. And, and the idea there is he's shut everybody's mouth in his presence. Nobody can say, yeah, but I've... Everybody's mouth is just absolutely shut. And there's one door. All the other doors of self-righteousness or my accomplishments, they're all just shut. And then God blows up the doors. <laughs> there's no door except mercy. He shut us all up to one course. It's mercy. And we illustrated that, or it was illustrated in Christ's own parable of the, the tax gatherer. And what did he bring before God? After the Pharisee brings all of his accomplishments, he brings one request, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. It's almost that he's living out. He's a living demonstration of what Paul was trying to bring every person to. The, per, the, the point of saying... I'm a sinner. I have no hope except your mercy. So who's it for? It's for all because all have sinned. All of you have the same need and therefore he has the same offer to you. That's encouraging. What's your qualification for getting to be in the presence of God forever? You're a sinner. Isn't that a paradox? But that's what he's saying. It's for all. There's no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. Don't ever doubt the personal invitation of God, in a sense, looking you in the eye and saying, it's for you. And your argument to say, but I'm such a sinner, is just the proof that it's for you. Because <laughs> it's for sinners. It's for sinners. <clears throat> the phrase, fall short of the glory of God, is likely a reference to uh, our loss of that final glorious conformity to His glory, the enjoyment of the beauty of God which will transform us into miniature images of that beauty. To see the beauty and majesty and the joy of God and then to be filled as much as human beings can be filled with the very happiness and joy of God forever, being made into His image. Well, we've all sinned. We've lost that. We long for perfect happiness as human beings. We were made for perfect happiness. But we've lost the possibility of it. Because we've all sinned. And that's why it's stressed so much. For instance, in chapter 5, through, <clears throat> through Him, we've obtained access to this grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Now we've been restored. We have peace with God and we rejoice in the hope now where we had lost the glory of God. We have the hope of the glory of God. In chapter 8, he talks about that, that we are, we are fellow children with Christ. We're fellow heirs and we're going to be glorified with Him. Much talk of glory in chapter 8, which we don't have time for, but it's for all because all need it. And, and look what He restores us to. He restores us to that final, ultimate, forever happiness. And how does He do it? We'll touch on this. It's expressed in the very sacrament that we're going to partake of. We're justified. Notice it speaks of the, how free it is and yet how costly it is. It's not costly to us in this sense. It's by His grace in verse 24 as a gift. What do I have to do for it? What do I have to accomplish? Uh, we saw the Wizard of Oz last night that the uh, Covenant kids uh, put on. And, of course, the Wizard of Oz tells them, well, if you're going to get my gifts, you're going to have to go and take care of the wicked queen, you know, the wicked witch. Uh, and we thank God almost. If, if you're really going to have my favor, you're going to have to fulfill some obligations before rather than just coming empty-handed. And God says, you know, freely for no dessert in yourself, simply because you're trusting me, I'll give you everything forever. Everything. Only by faith. It is a gift. A gift. But the cost is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That has to do with our bondage in sin. And then he has the word propitiation, which has to do with the guilt and the judgment that our sin deserves. So Christ releases us, redeems us, and he is the propitiation for us. He propitiates the wrath of God. He satisfies the wrath of God. He bears that wrath on our behalf. And of course, it says by his blood, indicating the horrible death by which he died. And again, the emphasis, received by faith. Verse 25. Helpless dependence upon the work of another on our behalf who redeems us from the dominion of sin and the bondage of sin and He completely satisfies the wrath of God. I want you to turn in your hymnals to hymn 172. In 172... The what of the justifying action of God and where is it to be found in Christ, not the law? Who? It's for everyone. How does He do it? Through the work of Christ, which costs everything. Which brings us finally to this why did He have to do it this way? And He says it was to show God's righteousness because He's passed over sins. It seems that God is not just to have had people in fellowship with Himself. Even when you think of the world as a whole, there's so many indications that it doesn't seem like God really cares about sin. But here it is. It shows His righteousness at the present time that He is, and one of the most important phrases in Scripture, just and justifier. He can, he can declare to us criminals not guilty, I declare you righteous and not be unjust in doing so. Why? As he says, because Jesus is the propitiation. 
Jesus has satisfied that wrath. Well, did God ignore sin? No. He judged sin in Christ Jesus. Did He hate sin? Does He hate our mistreatment of one another? Absolutely. He does not wink at that. He pours out His wrath completely upon it. And so that is a lesson to all of us. No matter how much God may forbear you as you ignore Christ, this is the statement to convince you and me God detests sin and He will judge it. Because when sin was put upon His own Son, His Son suffered under the judgment of God. God will judge sin. And my only hope is to hide in Jesus Christ who bore my judgment. I have no other hope or I will face judgment for sure. Just think, dear friend, of the pride of saying, well, Jesus may have been judged under sin, but I can appear before God not worrying about the work of Christ and God won't judge me for my sin. There's one hope, and that is to be sheltered under Jesus Christ, or you and I will face judgment. But notice the fourth verse of Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. I close with this. Let us wonder. Grace and justice, you know, this is the one. He who washed us with his blood. You know that tune we sing, the RUF tune. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. So here's God's justice against sin and His grace, undeserved favor. They point to the storehouse of mercy. And this is one of the greatest statements, I think, and, and it's so much of what's being proclaimed here. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. There is a comfort for you and me. Not only that God forgives me, but I can think about His justice and His hatred against sin, and I know His justice smiles at me. His justice smiles at the situation because justice is fully satisfied because God is just as He justifies. He's perfectly fair and righteous and just. Nothing's going under the table on this this, uh, matter. And so I hope that as we come to the table that you will have maybe that phrase in your head, justice smiles and asks no more. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have declared us righteous in your sight through the precious work of Jesus Christ, the shedding of His blood, becoming a satisfaction for your wrath so that we, have, we do not have to fear anymore. Even as John Newton said, that grace taught my heart to fear in the sense of to respect and love and trust you and grace all my fears relieved. Oh, Lord, may we taste ever that relief of the fear of judgment. Even as John tells us in chapter 4 of his letter, that perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. 
Lord, may we so believe in the work of Jesus Christ, so believe in your intention because you set him forth as a propitiation. You are not the reluctant partner here being convinced by the Lord Jesus. You set forth your own son for our sake. We rejoice in that, Lord, so that you are just as you justify us. Justice smiles now, even though we're sinners being forgiven. Justice smiles. And we have no fear of condemnation. We have no fear of punishment because we've begun to experience the glorious love of God that is manifested in Christ. Oh, Lord, even now, as we come to the table, convince us all the more in the work of Jesus Christ for our sake, planned and initiated by God himself. Bless us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of